You're listening to AccidentalMuslims.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is Nazir Jamal and welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com from the east coast of South Africa in sunny Durban. AccidentalMuslim.com is a platform and a movement where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. We hope to add value to your life, so listen up and enjoy. This evening we have a guest of ours from Durban. His name is Maulana or Sheikh Junaid Karsani. He served as Imam of Inglewood Masjid, California, USA. He is the founder of Riyadhul Uloom Seminary, now based in Durban. He has represented the California Muslim community as a national speaker, a campus chaplain, and an educator. Currently, Molana Junaid is a radio presenter and a researcher. So we're very blessed to have him in studio this evening. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, brother Nazir and the rest of the accidental Muslim team. Well, shukran for accepting our invite. Uh, now, you, you you were born in Durban, South Africa, but your father was born actually in India. Yes. Uh, share with us the background of your young life. Well, you see, my grandfather, let's start with him. Uh, he was born in South Africa in Denhauser. But back in the day, I suppose it was common that you go back to the motherland to find a wife or they find a wife for you. And uh, they identified my grandmother as a potential spouse for him in uh, in Bodan. That, that's a village where we are from, about a few kilometers north of uh, Surat. Uh, so uh, when he was ready to be troded and get married, they sent him off, packed him off to get married to, that, uh, to my grandmother. And by the time they were married, it was the late 1930s, World War II had broken out. So uh, many of the shipping, the commercial as well as the passenger shipping to South Africa had stopped because of the war. Okay. Uh, as one could expect in a time of, uh, of a global war, all commercial liners would cease to fly in, in that particular zone. So he used to commute between South Africa and India every year or so, but he felt that the family would rather make the passage when things were much, much more safer. So in that commute up and down, he made, uh, alhamdulillah, he and my grandmother, both of them made, my father, who was the firstborn, and then his, uh, his brother, my uncle. And when they were ready to come to South Africa, after World War II, uh, back in the day on the SS Karanja, which many of our ancestors yeah. speak about, the, the favoured or only mode of transport that used to stop at every port before coming to South Africa. Uh, my grandmother was already in her early 20s by that time, and my gra- father was five, and his brother was three. And uh, that's the story of his arrival to, uh, to South Africa, um, which is, I suppose, in, in the 1940s, not so uncommon a story. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my birth, of course, in Durban and uh, studied in Johannesburg for much of my life, they in Darulum Azadville. But, um, you know, although I, I'm, I'm a Durbanite, a born Durbanite, my real adult memories of Durban have only started when I came back from America. Because okay. after I graduated, I stayed here for a, th- for a few years and then I, I migrated to, to America and uh, my real memories are actually from there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just after school, <coughs> you completed your HIVS uh, at a young age of 17. And you enrolled, as you said, at, for an alim course at the Darul Uloom Arabiya Islamiya in Azadvo. Now, one of the questions I was thinking about while I was reading your bio, was this a, a real dream of yours to become an Islamic scholar at a young age? See, back in the 90s, we didn't have any dreams 
uh, I, I don't think you would ask a 16 or a 17 year old what's a boy that is. Girls yeah. have dreams. Yeah. Uh, they, they dream sometimes of settling down, sometimes of some career slash house maker, etc, etc. But guys don't really have dreams no matter how smart they are. Uh, or, or, the, or, or the average guy doesn't. So I right. suppose at age 17, it was just where my best friend was going. So uh, your best friend decides to go to a Darulun to pursue some studies. He doesn't make it. Or the rest of the batch that leaves with you make it and you uh, don't make it. And you take a liking to uh, the actual new lifestyle and you appreciate what you are learning. And, uh, you know, you, you happen to be the only one in that bunch, the accidental arrival in that bunch. <laughs> Yeah, so that's basically the story of my arrival at, uh, you know, Madrasa Darul Mazarwal, a move which I don't regret. It prepared me for life. Uh, it taught me a great skill, the Arabic language, yeah. uh, as well as introduction to Urdu itself, which uh, is a major asset in pursuing any line of deen. Whoever claims to pursue deen is a talib, a seeker in any way, and does it without the tool of uh, the Arabic language, uh, well, I'm afraid that person is not a real seeker, no matter how many English translations or French translations they were to muddle through. Uh, so this prepared me for, uh, for life in general. It also networked me to a good set of friends. Uh, there were international students, there were local students, and all of them, alhamdulillah, went on after that seminary to make something of their lives. Not all of them, I would say, uh, you know, served deed in the capacity of being an imam or being a uh, leader of a community, but they went on into business or they went on into other service-related professionals, but they always remained part of my circle. And up to today, I do network and keep in touch with many of them. And uh, if, if anything, besides the knowledge itself, uh, it, it made uh, hashtag my circle, circle a little bigger. <laughs> Love that. So I mean, this is a general progression. Uh, at a young age, you, you found your wife and your wife is also an Islamic scholar, alhamdulillah. Uh, could you share us that marriage journey? You see, uh, w when I was in my final year, now, of course, it was, I could say, time, time to get married. You know, you, you approach such a age now, you realize that obviously the dating game is not for us as Muslims. We want yeah. something more, um, you know, substantial. We want something more halal slash kosher, slash committed. Slash committed in that sense. So <clears throat> my mother actually asked me that, you know what, do you have anybody in mind? And somehow or the other, you know, I do recall that round about the same time that I went to study, there was this girl who was in school with me, primary school, not even in high school that also went to pursue the Alima program, which was rare. I mean, becoming an Alim back in the day was rare enough. Mm. Uh, but uh, a, a girl pursuing uh, similar studies uh, was also rare. So do you, did you, she, when she asked me that, did you have anybody in mind, somehow this name popped up. Right. And uh, it was convenient. My wife is uh, from the corner of Brickfield Road and Crescent Street. That's where my in-laws are from. Okay. I uh, lived most of my life uh, after we got kicked out of Medina Court, the First Avenue area. You know, where all of us used to live back in town yeah. by, the, by, the, by the Gravel Race Course. So once the um, group area, Zach, booted us out from there, we came to Harbottle Road here, here in Overport. So it was two streets away. And um, I, 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 I'm a guy who always looks for convenience yeah. rather than the exotic alternative. <laughs> I had guys who graduated with me who would dream of getting married to a girl from China because they like the oriental look. Right. Uh, some guys wanted to get married in Russia. Some, some, all of them had their dreams and some of them, in fact, even pursued it to the point of even getting on Shadi.com <laughs> and looking for Chinese Muslims. <laughs> but uh, I always seem to have adopted the more practical approach, what's down the street, uh, why are you going 
to look for uh, tomatoes in, in Tongart when you can find it right here in Sunrise <laughs> Supermarket. <laughs> so as a result, that practical approach uh, drove me to telling my mother, hey, I remember this girl from down the road. And that girl, Alhamdulillah, Appa Adila, as many people uh, would know, uh, became, uh, you know, my wife. And Alhamdulillah, we married in 1997 now. So it's uh, 20 years. Uh, at that time, I was 21 okay. and she was 20. Uh, so upon graduation, without any of a break, uh, once that uh, diploma was in the hand, and for those familiar with the Darulum system, the green turban was uh, on the head. <coughs> so I, I, I got married and, and started life from there. And you also served one year in Jamaat. Yes, post, yes. Post studies. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You brought up an interesting concept of, of marriage at a young age. What would your advice be on that? Uh, I, I would suggest that you get married when the time's right. Uh, everybody knows themselves. Now, although the desire of the community, and certainly we can understand why, would be for a person to get married as soon as possible, settle down, but not everybody is the same. And not everybody has the same, uh, you could say, challenges, and neither has anybody the same advantages. Fortunately, I had the advantage and the ability to get married at that age, supportive parents, supportive background, uh, which uh, supported my idea, which required a certain amount of uh, uh, financial backing to begin with. Mm. Uh, not everybody has that, uh, has that ability. So you get married when the time is right, but the, the bottom line is that when that time is right, don't now look for the ideal conditions. The conditions are never going to be ideal. Mm. So long as you can support a wife and you have come across the person who seems to fulfill the important other half of your deen, say Bismillah, don't harp on looks, don't look for the exotic, don't look for the uh, flamboyant, you look for what is practical for you, you say Bismillah and at the end of the day, your wife is your queen and she will be the most beautiful person in your eyes. Amin, Amin, inshallah. A wife and husband for those females who are listening. <laughs> so in 1998, after your studies, you and your wife taught at Islahul Muslimin, which offers a very interesting high school as well as Islamic education for boys and girls. How important do you think it is for Muslims to seek secular as well as religious knowledge or should there actually be a, a distinction? I think that rather than terming it uh, entirely as secular, we should term it as acquired. Uh, secular has got certain connotations. Acquired means that that knowledge, which is not necessarily divine, but can assist a divine course. Uh, I think it would be absolutely vital and necessary in, in the times that we are living in. Even if you are an alim or an alimah, uh, and, and if you feel that you are not going to pursue that acquired knowledge in any way for the purposes of your own betterment and enrichment, pursue something that will augment and support your current Islamic lifestyle and your current Islamic studies. And that, Nazir, I mean, can, can bring you into the fact that why when UCLA in the United States had given me the opportunity to study uh, tertiary education and to graduate through the Islamic Studies Department, I, uh, I, I felt the need to do so. They opened up a number, number of departments to the clergy, not necessarily the Muslim Imams, but to the clergy in general. And one of those uh, advices that my seniors in the country had given me, 
especially uh, the late Mawlana Mumtazul Haq, who was recently shaheed, passed away in a shooting, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fill his qabr with nur, who at that time was serving the community in a place called Milpitas, uh, which was in uh, the San Francisco area. And he advised the ulama that should these opportunities arise, that you seek acquired knowledge through the current system that will support your understanding of the society that you are living in, by all means do so. So I pursued a degree in humanities. Now humanities is a very broad subject. Uh, part of humanities is something which is known as anthropology, the study of human sciences and the study of human development, yeah. uh, in brief, if I may summarize it. And uh, it was one faculty that accepted me, uh, and uh, I just ran with it. I graduated with my degree from UCLA's Department of Anthropology, and thereafter I continued to teach there you know, for a while. But the, the subject itself, all it did was assist me in the work that I was currently doing. I was serving as an imam. Part of that job uh, portfolio would include uh, counseling, would include uh, you know uh, interfaith type of discussions where you don't dilute your narrative, but at the same time you accept another person's narrative and you try to understand him and you try to find common ground for the purposes of cooperation. All of that requires an understanding of the human being. Yeah. And uh, such studies... Uh, although they may be deemed as acquired or secular by the rest of the world, will so certainly assist a person in the work of deen that they are currently involved in. Now, you actually moved across to another part of the world mm -hmm. for the sake of, of, of knowledge mm -hmm. and for the sake of spreading this knowledge. But making hijrah or relocating is not an easy uh, thing to do. It's one of the most stressful things, as they say on the top list yes. of 10 most stressful things. Yeah. Relocating is one of them. But how did you and your family manage this, this new journey? There's only two ways that a person can really make hijrah or migrate from one part of the world or even one city to another city. is either you are desperate or either you are young and stupid. <laughs> there's no there's no third way. So either you are desperate and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala save us from ever being involved in a natural catastrophe or a war or something of that yeah, sort no. that you have to leave. Yeah, no. or, or you are young and naive and you want to see the world on a budget and there's no better way to do it but to work and see and explore. And you've got a young family who doesn't know any better. Your in-laws do know better, so they do try and coerce uh, yourself and their daughter. You know what? Think about it. We will buy you a house. We will furniture, etc. We will, etc. If it's if it's money that you're after, we can make make a plan. Uh, but just stay close. But that you know that spirit inside you as a younger person. I remember this happened in my twenties, in my mid twenties. By that time, I had already four children. Wow. When I migrated to the U.S. I already had those four kids. The oldest, my daughter, was uh, seven years at that time. And there was a baby in tow and everybody in between. And, uh, you know, it was just the spirit of uh, serving Dean. Maybe, you know, what the doors of coming back would be open. But at least to have it on my resume in front of the Almighty that, you know what, I took the message which I uh, acquired through your father and grace here in my home country, I took it somewhere for a couple of years. And to at least stand up with that argument or that proof on the Yom Al-Qiyamah was something that I was looking forward to. Now, we live in a globalized world. Uh, we see it in, in, in all forms of media, in the way that uh, we interact and, and the situations that we are in. But do you see or do you feel there's major differences between the Muslim community in South Africa and the Muslim community in the U.S.? Or do we actually, because this globalized world, face similar challenges? Yeah, I think you hit the word right there, globalization. 
there are different type of challenges that one could experience. One are social challenges. Social challenges are the same everywhere. So you could be a kid growing up in Mumbai or Karachi. You probably will have the same social temptations of uh, woman, wine and song that any other kid growing up anywhere else will have here in Cape Town or Durban for that matter. Social challenges seem to be the same wherever you go. But what makes America... Uh, different, and the other parts of the world that could also fall in that category as well, is that you have a lot of political and governmental challenges as well, which we in South Africa have not as yet experienced, and we make dua to Almighty that we never go down that way, and uh, he, he saves us, uh, you know, from from such challenges. But the community living in that part of the world does have that paradigm or that dimension of challenges that are not unique to them, but are different in that sense. And I lived through it. I lived through September 11th and the post-September 11th era uh, and uh, working with different law enforcement agencies, understanding what you can accept from them, understanding their agenda as well, uh, not taking things on face value, understanding uh, the rights of a person, getting the community involved from a civic engagement point of view. All of those were unique challenges and experiences that I felt that I benefited benefited from you know during my time in the United States which I would not have benefited from had I been here in South Africa did you face any challenges in terms of uh, terrorism and, and the laws that were placed post 9/11 yes I did I mean uh, I, I was detained uh, for a day on, on a number of occasions and they would ask you the same same old questions now when I would come back to the masjid with the story those of my immigrant Musallis would be all like flustered, hey, they took you in, are they going to deport you? I, being a South African, just took it as a major joke. You know I, mean? I just took it like another airport blunder that you have right here when you come at Tambo or you come at, you know, uh, Durban King Shaka Airport. Then they're asking you 50, 50 and 1 questions. What's the worst they're going to do? Send you back to South Africa. Send you back to Durban. Uh, heaven on earth. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> you know, like I was reading, I don't know if it's, if it's an appropriate conversation now, that one of those cartoons had Hugh Hefner and the, and the, and, and the gate of, of paradise yeah. and the guy is asking him paradise he's saying what the hell are you talking about I just came from, <laughs> just came from paradise <laughs> so I, I used to lead that conversation with, with the FBI and the CIA in, in, in that particular way yeah. and you know what this is who I am uh, I'm not scared of you in any way whatsoever uh, there, there's nothing you know you can do if you want me to leave I'll leave if you want me to stay I'll stay and yeah. fortunately in that time uh, I wouldn't say they took a liking. They don't take a liking to anybody. But they got an understanding of where we came from. Uh, they would call me whenever a person would be picked up by their officers, either to observe and then to ask them what, uh, or, or, or inform them, uh, what did I feel about a particular individual, uh, you know, is he a threat to society, etc. And this is their mind games that they would continually play, yeah. which also at the same time you've got to take with, not a pinch of salt, but many tablespoons of salt, you know, in your drink. This is their modus operandi, which they, they'll never love you and you must never love them. But at least those doors were open and uh, they understood that the Muslim community here has got nothing to hide. And uh, I, I feel that uh, I, I experienced from that, my experience from that interaction was, uh, was positive going forward. Uh, South Africa, you know, is slowly becoming uh, a member of the international community in a fully-fledged way. Those challenges are on the horizon when it comes to our society over here. And uh, the modus operandi of how to deal with them is, is something that uh, I felt that uh, I, I, I benefited from. 
So Sheikh, you've been hosted at major events uh, across the world, such as RIS and ISNA Convention in the US, uh, which aims to guide Muslims to live purposely in the Western world or a non-Muslim country. What advice would you give to young South African Muslims who are trying to find their space or their identity in this world? I think that go back to your roots. Every one of those conferences and every one of those speakers will will lead you or leave you with an underlying message of know where you come from. And knowing that the values, if not the place where your ancestors had grown up in, were, were such that catered for your every needs. And uh, if you go back to those very same principles and values of integrity, of purpose, of hard work, of... Uh, not leading a hedonistic, opulent life, simplicity. And those very same values which we inherited as Muslim youngsters and which represent a very important fundamental part of our deen, you would be okay no matter where you lived. And this is probably true of here in South Africa. It's true of living in the United States, that should your lifestyle be within the conforms of the sunnah, should your ambitions be like how the messenger says that when you see today, don't anticipate your world to see tomorrow, live like a traveler. And all those very same concepts, which many of the non-Muslim community have taken to be a gospel for themselves. Many of the high rollers of the world, those that have made great achievements, be it your Einsteins or your Bill Gates or your or your jobs, all of them, if you look at their closets, if you look at the way they live, the way they bought their vehicles, it would be as if they're living like travelers. Now, whoever lives like that is following a prophetic example. So I would advise them to continue to search in the seerah of the Messenger for an ideal principled lifestyle and adapt it to their current norms. Alhamdulillah. And I think that's a great advice for young people who, who are searching mm-hmm. for that identity, especially in a country like South Africa that has so many now influences. And as we said, the globalized world that we're living in, mm-hmm. uh, finding those challenges consistently and finding that space. Inshallah, we, we, we pray that these young uh, or young Muslims and young South Africans find that space mm-hmm. and find their closeness to God. Inshallah. You're now the head of Radio Islam in KZN, a satellite radio station broadcasting internationally. How important do you think it is for Muslims to be involved in media or specifically new media? Absolutely. I mean, media is the voice of a community. It's the voice and the of our narrative. Uh, and to understand the value of media, I mean, one just had to look at, again, the prophetic example that the Messenger, وسلم, in fact, built a separate pulpit or member for Hassan bin Thabit to recite his poetry. Now, what was the purpose of the poetry? The purpose of poetry was the media of the day. The information of the day would be given to the general world from that pulpit of Hassan bin Thabit and conveyed to kingdoms across the world what was the mood of the Muslims, what were their replies to propaganda that would be uh, ousted by their enemies and what would be the positivities coming out of Medina to Manawara. The media of our day is the newspapers, the uh, Instagrammers, the videos, as well as the uh, radio outlet that uh, you know we, we hope to perfect uh, right here at Radio Islam International. Now, um, my personal passion with radio is simply being that somehow radio is one media that has survived the test of time. Yeah. Uh, print media seem to have run its mill. People hardly pick up newspapers or magazines unless you want to read the specials or unless you want to look for what's on sale or something of that sort or on a holiday or something of that nature. And when it comes to videoing, which seems to be the um, media of the day, 
who knows how long we are going to have time to remain as a captive audience to see even a 10-15 minute uh, you know, video. But podcasting and the audio part of media has always remained and I foresee it to remain a force to reckon with forever. Uh, or so long as you know what media exists. Hence, my close involvement with with uh, with that audio media. Not to say that I shun any other forms of media, uh, but audio media in particular is my passion, and I see it going a long way. Hence, I'm seated here on the chair of Radio Islam International. Alhamdulillah, uh, we all enjoy success stories and uh, finding out uh, ways that people have succeeded in their journeys in life. Uh, would you would you care to share one of your defining ones? My defining moment of what I term as, uh, or what I could term as my winning spot, as far as ultimate success is concerned, of course, uh, I'm still in the pursuit of that of that success. I, I don't feel that I've achieved that ceiling as yet, and maybe that's a good thing. I think that that restlessness, uh, that urge as a hunter, must still continue to remain in every Muslim till the time they pass away. But an important turning point uh, in, in my personal life was wherein I learned to appreciate the value that every person was contributing towards this beautiful dean of ours. I was invited as a national speaker to a college. Uh, now this was in Green Bay. Now I lived uh, in Los Angeles, and Green Bay is about an eight-hour flight from Los Angeles. It, it'll be closer for you to go from here for Umrah than it will be for a person in the United States, in Los Angeles, to go to Green Bay. And um, my normal principles are that I uh, accept invitation from everybody, so long as you communicate with me via writing, via email, so I can continue to assess what are your demands and your topics, etc. And uh, this college sent me an email that was signed off the MSA of, uh, of Green Bay. And I communicated with them for a number of weeks, and uh, they gave me a date and they sent me a ticket to fly. And when I flew into Green Bay, it was, uh, it was a blizzard. It, it was absolutely snowing that you can't believe. So I um, take my luggage off the carousel and I make my exit to, uh, you know, to the doors of the, of, the, of the airport. And I see this car waiting for me and everybody's bundled up with these big, big hoodies on their head. And I jump into the car. And as we jump into the car, uh, everybody's taking off their hoodies, including me. And I look around and I see I'm surrounded by sisters from the MSA. And the airport is one hour drive away. So I get to thinking to myself that, you know what, I flew here eight hours to jump in a car with, with, these, with these sisters. And I asked them very casually that, you know what, aren't there any other brothers here on the campus that are taking interest who could have come and picked me up or I could have rented a car uh, in this blizzard and could have driven myself instead of being uh, picked up. N- not directly. I, d- I don't want to, you know, knock them off of their, of their position. They're, they're, they're meaning well yeah. and uh, at this point in time. And they mentioned something to me that, that, that I continue to quote and I continue to appreciate. And they said that, Sheikh, it's only us. Uh, it's only us. It's only we that I... There's no masjid in Green Bay. I don't know now, but that time there was no masjid. This was the only Islamic facility run by these sisters at that time. And it gave me a great sense of appreciation that whoever is doing anything for the sake of deen in whatever capacity, we are duty-bound not just to appreciate, but to help and to assist and never to look down upon the efforts of anybody. Otherwise, we risk ruining the good that we ourselves are doing. That's my success story.
Now, in the Muslim community globally, you travel most part of the world uh, to many countries, alhamdulillah. And here in South Africa, we're faced with a serious religious leadership crisis. Do you think this is true uh, um, globally and in South Africa? And, and if so, how can how can we rectify it? It's, and and what, what do you think is true leadership in, in your words? You see, true leadership uh, is a result of a true flock. That's where it starts from. Uh, gaining true leadership, I mean, one would be right by claiming that from a global perspective that we are lacking political as well as spiritual leadership. And uh, not everybody may agree with that statement, but I'm sure the majority of people would at least appreciate that we have a leadership crisis in every department of uh, Islamic uh, you know, culture and understanding, be it political or, 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 or from the member for that matter. But what we also need to understand that where does leadership come from? A leader is a son or a daughter of the community. A community makes the leader. So you have a vibrant community. It will result in a vibrant leader uh, coming to the fore. And we need to ask ourselves the question that as part of that community, have we played our role? Are we the spiritual activist? I mean, many of us may be activists that as soon as a march comes to the fore, we're ready. But are we a spiritual activist? Are we there for tahajjud at the same time? Are we learning our deen? Have we even bothered to make an attempt to learn genuine Arabic or Tajweed with our activism at the same time. The same question will apply to a person who is learning their Quran and who is learning their Tajweed. Am I an activist person at the same time? Do I feel for my fellow Muslim brother who's suffering in any parts of the world? We all need to maintain this balance. And when we appreciate people who are attempting to maintain that balance, leadership will come from those quarters. So what we need to do is that we need to work on ourselves. Uh, and as soon as we do so, and should we be sincere, that sincerity will propel us, without us even knowing, to a position of leadership. And speak of leadership, you're a husband, you're a father of actually seven children, alhamdulillah. Mm -hmm. You're a scholar, a lecturer, a radio manager, and the list goes on. How, how do you as a leader in, in your house and your community manage and, and balance all this? It's because uh, of uh, my better half of my wife, who for years has been patient with my busy schedule, uh, who has, alhamdulillah, taken a great bulk of the responsibilities of the managing the children and the household. And uh, there are a number of personal principles that uh, I've applied. You know, for number one, I don't have a TV, hence seven children. But also at the same time, besides seven children, I feel that those distractions... Uh, when they are not there in the household uh, of unmanaged Wi-Fi, of a TV screen for that matter, you know, those distractions breed uh, a, a rowdy household, an undisciplined or ill-disciplined type of a household. Uh, you know, I, I live in a three-bedroom uh, apartment, the boys in one room, the girls in one room, mother and father and the baby in another room, a traditional setup that many of us in our 40s would be accustomed to. Uh, I don't give my kids any allowance. They ask if it sounds sensible, they get. Uh, th that's how it works. Uh, if they want to work, they have liberty to do so. If they want to own a device, they have liberty to do so as long as I don't pay for it. Um, they, they are entitled to a social life so long as I know who they're hanging around with. And I feel I've invested in what really matters. Good nutrition, decent clothes, my own house, um, good education, or the best that you know my resources could could afford, um, you know such trips that are meaningful to those things that reflect nature as opposed to those things that reflect a culture. 
10 years in the United States, I was 20 minutes away from Disneyland. We've never been to Disneyland. But yet we've been to the Yosemite National Park. We've been to Yellowstone. We've been to Niagara Falls. We've been to those natural, you know, phenomena or creations that really mean something to us in life. And uh, I felt that those choices that I made in those 20 years made for a more productive household, which uh, I could, alhamdulillah, fall back on. Of those seven kids, three are Hufas, the daughter and two of the older boys, and number four or five, alhamdulillah, on their way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, those are the, that's the fadl and the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But this comes from where a person manages those basic principles, which we are supposed to adhere to as Muslims anyway. Now, you're, you're quite a funny man, uh, as, as you've been listening to. Uh, would you share one of your funny moments in your life? Well, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> there, there, there are many, you know, there are many funny moments that Alhamdulillah I could, uh, I could share. One was, of course, uh, that, that, that incident of, uh, you know, of me landing up there in, in Green Bay. But, uh, but, but in addition to that, you know, something comes to, comes to mind, you know, uh, right now is that uh, I'd landed at an airport in, uh, in Chicago, I believe. And, uh, you know, I was waiting for my, for my ride. And, um, you know, a person came up to me and said that, uh, you know what, um, I want to repent for my sins. So I said, okay, you can start right now by, by repenting, you know, for, for your sins. So I asked him, after he gave me a whole laundry list of what he did, uh, he said, I asked him that, you know what, what made, me cho- what made you choose me out of all the people for repenting for, for your sins? says that, you know what, I had a dream that Jesus was coming today and uh, you are the closest description <laughs> to, to Jesus. Uh, hence, I want to repent for my sins. And, and the sincerity of the fellow uh, you know, created an inner chuckle. I didn't want to break his spirit, so I let him carry on with his low, whole laundry list of adultery, uh, which, he, which he shared with me at that point in time, mentioning even some of his intimate details of what he did. But I allowed him to continue, but I knew in my deep down that, you know what, I'm going to have a laugh about this Jesus uh, episode, you know, a little later. Later on. <laughs> now, one of the questions I, I love asking and, and hearing from is um, one of your favorite Quranic verses and why? Uh, surah Ahzab, uh, which is Surah number 30, uh, or rather, uh, yeah, Surah Ahzab, which is the uh, the groups in the Quran Kareem, verse number 33, wherein Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ that in the way and the mannerisms of the Prophet ﷺ is a beautiful example. For that person who wish Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the last day. And remembers Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a lot. And why I feel that this is a personal verse that resonates with me is that it grants the believer hope and respite compared to any other uh, statement that the Quran Kareem has made. It gives the believer a message that provided no matter what capacity you come from, if it's your desire to follow the way and the principles of the Messenger they will be for you in it the best of examples and you will ultimately be able to reclaim your salvation through that desire to follow the footsteps of the Messenger Absolutely beautiful. The final last question that uh, I also enjoy asking is what are you grateful for right now? I was in a youth conference, and this was in um, this was in San Bernardino. It's like a mountainous area, and I was hanging around with high schoolers and um, college type of kids, and uh, we, we were part of a game. Now, in this game, uh, 
you, you had to pick out a piece of paper from a box and it was a question that you had to answer. Uh, and everybody's question was different. So there were about 30 of us in a circle and uh, you had to pick out this piece of paper from, from the box. So somebody picked out a piece of paper and read it out. What would you do if you broke your leg? And he had to answer that ad hoc immediate question. Somebody else, you know what, um, their question was, what if you failed a subject and you had to repeat a year? How would you explain it to your parents? Then my turn came to pick out a random piece of paper from a box. And you know what my question was? What if you lost your voice for good? And... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala willed it. There were 30 or 40 pieces of paper in that box. Anybody could have picked up. Mm. What if you lost your voice for good from that box? Mm. A quiet guy, a person who didn't know they had a voice to begin with, but I picked it up. And that, when I read my question out, there was this lull or hush in the room because I, I am the keynote speaker at this at this address. Yeah. Everybody knows Sheikh Junaid Kirsani in California. Mm. They know him as a speaker. They see him on YouTube. They see him wherever. And had I lost my voice, it got me thinking that, you know what, this was something that uh, I appreciate Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granting me. And uh, the ability, not just the voice itself, but the ability to communicate a message, hopefully in a way that benefits myself and benefits others, so that on the final day of Qiyamah, I will have something to call my own and my good on that day. Shukran Sheikh Junaid Kursani for this wonderful evening that we could spend the time that we had uh, to gain from your knowledge and guidance. May Allah bless you Ameen. and uh, grant you a lot of barakah in your, in your family Ameen. and in all the work you're doing. From ACRXNetalMuslim.com Asalaamu Alaikum Wa Alaikum Asalaam Wa Rahmatullahi Wa Barakatuh Shukran for listening. We hope we added value to your life and that you enjoyed this podcast. We hope our guest has helped you live your life with purpose. Don't forget to forward all suggestions and feedback to info at accidentalmuslims.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You're listening to accidentalmuslims.com.